Hello and welcome to an equity shot. Equity shots are what we do when we just can't wait for Friday and there is some breaking news that we must get to. Today we're going to go over Lemonade, who dropped their S1 filing yesterday, to big surprise, frankly, and Vroom, who listed today after pricing last night. Both of these companies are venture-backed and going public in the middle of a recession, so this is directly in the middle of our wheelhouse. And critically, I'm very excited to have Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors, with us today. Danny, hello. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Uh, I'm stoked because before we hit record today, uh, it turns out you and I do not agree on much on this episode, so it should be... We're as polarized as everyone. Polarizing, I think is a good word for it. But happily, we also have Natasha Mascarenas, one of TC's early stage and venture capital reporters. Tosh, how are you? Happy to see you guys. I was looking for some optimistic cases to make this morning, so we'll see how I do. (laughs) But it was a little hard. So it's going to be two on one if if you're keeping score for how this is going to shake out. But uh, IPOs share some some bones. They have some similar structures. And Danny's going to tell us why New York should be happy. Yeah. So before we get into the numbers, I I think it's important to kind of recognize that there are a couple of similarities between these two companies. So first, both are actually New York City based companies. So, you know, New York has always been struggling to find, you know, its footing in the exit market. It always has all these startups, but they never seem to actually go out. We had Flatiron Health get bought out for two billion bucks. We had Datadog go public as one of the best SaaS companies in the last couple of years. We now have two more on deck. And so it's great to see certain New York City come out with some exits. What's interesting is both of these companies have one shared investor, which is General Catalyst. The only investor with more than 5% stake in both companies. So kudos to them for getting some liquidity. And uh, what's interesting to me is that both of these companies are digitizing archaic old industries. So Vroom is trying to digitize, use car sales, which has to be in every stereotype, one of the worst experiences for most people, both on selling and buying. And Lemonade is trying to fix renter's insurance as, as well as pet insurance and a bunch of other different products. And so I think it's just interesting to see both of these kind of companies coming through in the same week when they have a lot of similarities in common. Yeah. And the reason why we, we initially were staring at these IPOs is because it's almost a little bit counter narrative. You know, companies are laying people off, pulling back, reducing risk. And usually in turbulent times, IPOs are are not done. People used to not even go public during an election year because that was too risky. And now, <laughs> you know, you know, four or five months into a recession with an election on the horizon and some national unrest and international unrest, really, it, it, people are going public now. So it certainly caught our eye. And these companies share some characteristics that are a little bit a, a little bit surprising. Now, Tosh, you and I have written about IPOs since I think Lyft went public, right? My first day at Crunchbase, um, Lyft went public. And I was, yeah, I've been, I've been working on ownership tables was always my job when I had S1 filed. <laughs> I was happy to take a back seat this time. But I was going to joke, I feel like some people must be listening to our podcast because I think the point we keep making is that some companies are taking this moment and are going to be, you know, they're preparing for the post-COVID world. And I feel like Vroom is exactly that. Like an online car marketplace doesn't scream public company to me, but I think that they're feeling optimistic. Yeah, actually, let's just get into it. Apparently, (laughs) Tosh just left my world on the optimism side and is now one against two. So there we go. I'm going to hold down the fort over here, an island of tranquility. It's not an island of tranquility. It's an island of crankquility. Anyways, before we get into why Danny's wrong about Vroom, let's talk about what it does briefly. If you've ever bought a car in any capacity, you know it's not the best experience, as as Danny intimated. Vroom seems to make it better. I went through their website and their process, and what you do is you like look on their site. Whatever the price is, that's what the car costs. You buy it, and they bring it to you, which 
how has it not been always the way it worked now that I think about it? Like, this seems like a pretty reasonable way to approach buying cars. And it's such a good experience that uh, it attracted tons of private capital. I think it was like 720 million, according to Crunchbase data, something nuts like that. And that's just over seven years because it's founded back in 2013. So like $100 million a year went into this company. So certainly well backed. And if Crunchbase data holds up here, it's December 2019 Series H put $254 million into the company at about a $1.5 billion post. T. Rowe Price, AutoNation, Durable, Capital Partners, General Catalyst, all put capital into the business. Now, pausing, before we get numbery, Danny, you have looked through this a little bit. You are generally bullish on the business. I want you to give us give us the VC's optimistic sunny take on, on Vroom and why it's a good business. Well, I think it's not just Vroom, it's Fair, it's it's Carvana, it's all the other companies in this space. Look, you, as you just described, used car sales is, is terrible. Outside of CarMax, which I had a great experience years ago selling a car to CarMax, so endorsement from a, a happy customer who managed to drop his car off and, and get a check for tens of thousands of dollars. Well, not thousands of dollars, but- Tens of dollars. Tens of dollars, my 1980s Hyundai. But uh, you know, what the, the amazing things about here is, is used cars is a huge market, right? And like any marketplace, the, the challenge is getting buyers and sellers on one platform. What Vroom, I think, has been able to do is actually show that it's able to get inventory. In the last quarter, first quarter of 2020, it has 5,700 cars available on its marketplace right now. And it's also showing that it has quite a bit of traction. It has hundreds of thousands of users who are showing intent to buy. And so, you know, the pickups and the drop-offs, simplifying that is just a way to get more volume on both sides. And I think Vroom has shown that it's able to do that. And that's what you need in a two-side marketplace. And I mean, coronavirus, look, uh, no one's going to buy a new car. Everyone's going to buy used for the next two years. So I think if you're debuting right now, I mean, part of the argument is uh, what a great time, uh, <laughs> at least for one company in this space, that people are going to probably go to used. And I'm, I'm all for marketplaces that, you know, give people cars beyond uh, digitally beyond Tesla's, like I think that the used aspect of it is exciting to me. And in the coronavirus perspective, you know, the people, the traditionalists that, you know, wanted to go with their family and give a test run of the car, you know, maybe some of those habits, depending on how long this all lasts, are going away. So that's kind of the point on like maybe a lot of the some customers that they weren't able to unlock before that wanted the traditional experience will now be like, this is the only way we can do it. So I guess we'll go with the public company that has the most, you know, potentially positive reputation for something as big of a purchase as a car. Yeah. So I think all of that's true. And I think what they've done is shown an insane ability to turn those dynamics into revenue growth. And just to put some numbers up there, 855.4 million in revenue in 2018, that grew nearly 40% in 2019 to 1.19 billion. And in Q1 this year, 375.8 million, which puts it on a higher run rate this year than last year. So lots of growth. I don't think it's a good business though. And I've been struggling with this for a long time because it's not that hard to sell this business when they're doing it effectively for cost. Because if you look at the company's gross margins, we've seen them actually fall from low to really slim. So in 2018, Vroom had gross margins of 7%, which is minute. And then that declined to 4.9% last year and also in the first quarter of this year. So that's my kind of like first reaction to this. Like I agree with Tosh, COVID, true, Danny used car buy experience, terrible but the business isn't that good. Danny, you made a point earlier about why why the gross margins are so small. Can you kind of walk us through that? Well, I mean, it's a marketplace business, right? So when you're looking at revenues, you're talking about the total price of the vehicle sold, right? So you sell a $20,000 vehicle, its revenues are 20,000. 
But of course, the vehicle itself is the bulk of that cost. So if you sell, you know, a $19,500 vehicle for $20,000, you're making a $500 gross profit. But from a gross margin perspective, it looks like, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%. But the, the key to understand this business is looking at per unit. You have to look at the actual value and the profits per car. Because in the United States, you know, I'm looking at the, the St. Louis Fed here. You know, in 2018, there were sales of almost 18 million new cars sold in the United States. And on top of that, you had almost 40 million used cars sold in 2018, right? And so we just talked about how many cars that Vroom has. It has 5,107 vehicles on its marketplace <laughs> today, right? Yes. The total used car marketplace in 2018, two years ago, but 2018 was 40 million units. And so the, the, the key for a lot of investors to understand here is, look, if their gross margin, or, I'm sorry, gross profit per, per unit is say 1600, which is sort of where it's been averaging the last couple of quarters, multiply that by owning 3% of this marketplace, right? That's the potential here. You can make hundreds of millions of dollars in profit if you can scale this up beyond where it's starting right now. So maybe, but we haven't seen that that begin to manifest in the numbers themselves. If you look at the Q1 results, what we see is the company generating a $18.4 million in gross profit off of nearly $400 million in revenue, and its net loss widening to $41.1 million. So its net loss is more than double its gross profit seven years into its life, $700 million of private capital, and now an, an IPO that we'll talk about the pricing in a minute. So, so again, Danny, like directionally, I agree. If this was 10 times as big, the numbers might look better, but it has shown no ability to demonstrate operating leverage. And so the idea that this is gonna just work better when it has myriad competition from tech-enabled competitors and old-school competitors alike, I struggle with that. And also, like, we're not always thinking 10 years down the road that companies do report earnings and move on them. So short-term performance does matter. And in this case, we know what's coming, which is a really bad Q2. The company said, stealing some of Tosh's thunder with COVID here. Sorry about that, Tosh. They said that in uh, April of 2020, so the last month that I talked about in the S1, they sold a little under 3,000 cars, and the per unit gross profit was down to 1,236, which is down from 1,800 roughly and kind of per unit in March. So even like in the shortest of terms, the current quarter, we know gross profit will go down. And the company also said, expect material decreases in future unit sales and revenue. So like they're going into a crash here and they just priced at 22 and then they're like $44 a share now. It's just, I don't get it. I, I think there's, there's a couple of pieces here to understand. One is similar to Open Door, which we've talked about on the company. Uh, one of the challenges with marketplace businesses like this is that they're actually an, an owned intermediary, right? They're actually owning the assets in between the buying and the selling. And so one of the major metrics that's important for this business is how many days do they actually hold on to a car sort of on the lot before it actually goes through. And and in the last mm -hmm. 10 quarters or so, it's averaged somewhere between 64 and 68 days on the market, which means it's, it's actually holding inventory for two months. If you want to scale up beyond 5,700 cars available, if you want to scale up to 20, 30, 40,000 cars, that's literally billions of dollars worth of you know, car inventory, you actually have to purchase from um, sellers, you know, people selling their cars to hold on to the lots, so you can sell it to other folks. And so I think a huge chunk of the equity they raised, frankly, was to buy cars, right? You actually had to have liquidity. Over time, I think once you're public, and a lot of those numbers are more easily accessible, there's a lot of other financing tools, debt, obviously, becomes an important component here. Others will do cash flow, sort of lines of credit. But, uh, uh, you know, when you're building up as a company, and you don't have those metrics in place, you have no proof points to show that you can actually get, you know, sort of sales velocity on the platform, it's hard, right? And you're using equity, really expensive equity to mm -hmm. buy used cars 
to hold on a lot. That's not a great model. And so I think an IPO sort of solves that. And it gives them a lot of um, leverage, I think, going into COVID-19, where, again, I think used car sales are going to zoom, or maybe I should say vroom, vroom. So I thought I thought we banned that joke at the start before the show. <laughs> you can't enforce anything, Alex. This is a free speech. I'm so happy you got it in. Danny. I'm just I'm, this is the problem with running the show as a democracy with four people because you can never actually get anything done. It's always a deadlock. It's really rare that Danny makes a factual error on the show, and so I'm gonna get to notice this this one time because usually it's me who makes a mistake, and then Danny corrects me very politely. So here's my polite correction: They do have credit facilities. They're not financing these cars off of off of equity. Uh, which makes the IPO timing a little more interesting, which is why I would b even bother, Danny, to note that, Tosh, I think they're going public now because they know that the Q1 numbers are going to be very rough, which is going to take away their growth narrative because of COVID, essentially, because that did decrease their short-term results. And right now, even though they have roughly $170 million in cash and they only burn $25 million a quarter in operating cash flow, go public now, raise a bunch of money, and then the IPO is done. You've locked in the gains for your investors and employees. Ta-da. And I think that is a bit of the narrative we're seeing with a couple of companies that have gone public before, like Kingsoft Cloud, which was gross margin negative for 2017 and 2018. And also, like we'll talk about with Lemonade in a minute, gross margin light businesses like that. This is the, the moment, if you will, to get out there and, uh, and get public. I think that's right. And, and Alex, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm looking through the S1 again. You know, they have a $141 million facility, what they call the vehicle floor plan facility, which sounds so <laughs> exciting and a total cash equivalence of about 170 million bucks. But 170 million when you're when you're buying and selling cars, to be clear, is not a lot. Right. And and when you're making money per car, you know, the key here is you've got to have tens of thousands of vehicles and they all got to be sold as quickly as possible. So I I am excited. I think the numbers are good. I think that's why they popped 96%. I think the market is, is telling you you're wrong. And thanks oh, to the efficient usually. market hypothesis that uh, was promulgated by your alma mater, we have to assume that everything is accurate when the market is signaling things. But I, I'm excited for the company. I think it's really early days. Give it some time. Okay, so first of all, he's making a U Chicago joke while wearing a Stanford t-shirt again, which we cannot allow. And two, the efficient market hypothesis is crap. And we've all seen that lately. It's not actually efficient, and we all know it. And it's a $450 million facility, Mr. Stanford, not 140. That's what's available left in the facility, that's not fair. the actual that's amount. Fair. That's very well. Okay, now to make Danny's point though, the stock was initially targeted 15 to $17 per share. Then that was raised to 18 to 20, at which point I pulled out my last seven hairs. And then it priced at 22, and then, uh, Danny's totally correct, it is now up to 42.91 as we record today, so up 95%. Um, so I am certainly wrong. <laughs> well, and I, I will say, I mean, on that front, I mean, you know, this has been Bill Gurley and a, a lot of other folks' complaints, but like, here's another goddamn IPO pop of almost double on day one of the stock. Now, maybe it'll decline in the coming days, maybe it'll, it'll you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But like, the fact that it pops so much on day one, like, what are these bankers doing when it comes to pricing? Like, how can you be off so badly from where the market demand is? I think there's two different conversations that get conflated. And I know we're a little bit short on time and we're going to scoot on to Lemonade in a minute. But like, I think there's like the, the retail narrative and then there's the long-term shareholding narrative. It's like, I was just talking to Howard, who's the CEO and founder of Yext. And I think Yext was actually a TechCrunch disrupt company back in the day. Anyways, known Howard forever, great guy, runs a public company, always fun to talk to. And he was talking about their shareholder base. And he was talking about how you really want to go out there you went on your road trip to Boston, to New York, to, you know, everywhere else, you really want to lock in these long-term shareholders. And they probably have a very different investing thesis than what the retail investors, like, you know, Tosh doing it the wrong way. The Robin Hood contingent that are Tosh's age that are out there buying like Hertz in bankruptcy that are now probably spinning up on Vroom are not in the same conversation. So you can't price your IPO to get the shareholders you want 
and then complain when there's a pop when retail investors push it higher. Like you're just being a whiny piece of shit and you need to knock it off. And also this is day one. Now it's up 103%, making me look even dumber as I talk. But I just don't think it's going to be at this level for a while because, I mean, it's going to have a bad Q2. And it's going to burn a lot of cash and it's going to have to prove that it can rebuild this growth narrative. So anyways, when life gives you lemons, make room, apparently. Um, and that's the TLDR. <laughs> okay. I'm curious, Tosh, when did you first hear of Lemonade? A couple years ago? Last year? When was it? I think when they raised their most recent round. Similar to Vroom, it was another company that was trying to like renovate a boring industry. Mm. And in some ways, it also is appealing to millennials by making it easier and more consumer friendly. So I think that's why it caught my eye when I heard about it last year. Yeah, I was curious if you'd heard about it in a work context, like covering its funding round versus if you'd heard about it in the wild, because you live in San Francisco, you rent. I was curious if it was part of like the conversation among um, millennials and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't part of the conversation necessarily. It was definitely more work related, but you know, I'm betting that it's going to be part of the conversation more, which is why I'm optimistic about Lemonade. I feel like it's it's this full service insurance provider and it um, basically protects home and rental. And I imagine that in, you know, going forward, a lot of young people are going to be more interested in protecting their assets because 2020 has taught us so much about what it's like to not over-prepare. And I, 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 that, that's where I see optimism with, Tosh, with Lemonade. Tosh, do you have Ritter's insurance? Um, I don't think so. There you go. See, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's Lemonade's problem in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, eight years in SF and I didn't either because I thought about it. I'm like, if someone breaks into my house and I'm they like, steal Dang, my TV, my it's, like, it's like $400. <laughs> like, oh no, my TV. Like, what are you going to do with it? You can, you can have it. I'll buy a better one. I, I never owned like diamond rings in a box that I was really terrified about people stealing. I owned like shorts. And like books, like no one's going to steal my freaking book collection. Like, oh, we've got his copies of, you know, Tom Clancy. We're rich. Anyways, Danny, back to you. Sorry. No, but I think this is, you know, this is one of the challenges I think Lemonade is trying to overcome, which is to say it wants it to be a more millennial focused insurer, right? You know, when you think of large insurers, I have Geico as, as an example, like Geico has a gecko. No one knows why. It's one of Warren Buffett's key like aspects of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. But like, ultimately, you're on this old website. It hasn't been updated in 15 years. It's not a great experience. Filing a claim is really hard. And then it takes like weeks to actually figure out what your claims adjuster actually decides you actually get in a check. And so Lemonade was rebuilt from the ground up to say, hey, what do millennials need? And the answer is they want an app. They want a phone. They want to be able to take a screenshot of something. You know, they, you can literally take a photo of like what happened upload that as part of the app experience and the claims happen really really fast you know they're the the key kind of magic to eliminate is that they're using you know supposed machine learning and let's do that in quotes because we don't yeah. really know what that means Thank but you. like you know ai ml automation to try to make claims processing faster which also saves the company money and the the key kind of millennial classic factor i mean there's two one is is that the company's color is pink is which as we all know is a millennial color it's 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 a friendly color for an insurance company most insurance companies are blue this one is pink. I validate this uh, point. But the second, uh, beyond color, was that um, it actually donates money at the end of the year if you basically don't pay your whole premium out. And the idea is that if you're sort of careful with your claims, anything over a certain percentage actually gets donated to nonprofits. The company has donated almost a million dollars uh, to nonprofits in the last two years and has also formed something called the Lemonade Foundation to do that further. And so the idea is like it's a pay it forward kind of model in which essentially if you're a good citizen and you're not making a lot of claims, there's some amount of money that's donated to a, a nonprofit. Danny, I want to add a fun factoid to your former point on like the instant gratification that comes with Lemonade. I think Forbes wrote a profile and I pulled out one of their quotes that 
Lemonade set a world record by paying a New Yorker's claim for his stolen Canada goose parka in three seconds. And apparently Lemonade's bought just like ran a bunch of algorithms and then set $730 to the person's bank account in literally three seconds. And wait, I mean, a Canada goose jacket costs $730? It's absurd. It's yeah, the, the stupid, the the ones the that stupid uh, animal killing. Didn't Drake? Did, doesn't Drake wear those? <laughs> I'm sure. I, I, I think I think everyone wears them. At least they do in New York. No, I was just gonna say. I think that instant gratification will be exactly what gets younger people to sign up, and it's a good business to to get people in. I mean, when they don't have a bunch of assets, when they don't have those diamonds in the box, because I guess over time, ideally, we will all have more things to protect, and that will be how lemonade eventually leaves the red. Okay, so a couple of things. One, it, this is a hot pink. That's their color scheme. Millennial oh, pink sorry. is a specific tone of pink. Kate oh. Clark taught me this. Uh, <laughs> and so it, it's not the right one. Although I do agree, Danny, it does stand out from the very boring conservative world of greens and blues that insurance companies tend to um, tend to look for. Uh, and I agree with everything you guys are saying. I would amend instant gratification to better service. Like millennials expect better service than older people do. And so I think we, we joke about this in a negative light. Like, oh, millennials want it now. Everyone wants their claim now. It sucked that claims just take forever. So now we're making it better. So instant gratification, I think, puts a negative onus on the users. And I would go with like, sure. shit sucks less now. Anyways, we're talking about them because they filed. And Tosh made a joke about them coming out of the red. And so um, before I get shot down again, I want Danny to tell me his take on this company. If he's uh, relatively bullish or relatively bearish on Lemonade's financial performance heading into its Wall Street debut. Well, I, I will say I'm gonna I'm gonna claim ignorance for once, which I never do on this show because I'm an expert. Insurance is really hard, <laughs> and I don't know anything about insurance, particularly on the modeling side, right? You got premiums, you got premium loss ratios, and as soon as you get in premium loss ratios, it brings me back to uh, health insurance policy class I took it as an undergrad, in which I never want to hear about medical loss ratios again, which is like. You know, it's like everything is great except the loss ratio, which is like people dying. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you're in this really strange world where everything is sort of the opposite. Uh, you know, the expense line is people's lives. And so I, I literally don't know anything about insurance. So I'm going to say nothing about that, but I'll come back to the equity cap table in a bit when you're ready. Okay. So um, I know marginally more than Danny, but not a hell of a lot. Insurance is, is, a, is, a, is a weird place. I have covered a lot of insurtech marketplaces and some companies like Metro Mile and so forth. So I've gotten a little bit of the lingo in the last six months. And along the broad strokes, Lemonade looks pretty good. So what you want to see is their gross written premiums going up, as in are they selling more product? They certainly have. From 9 million in 2017 to 47 million in 2018 to 116 million in 2019. Now for an insurance company, 116 million in written premiums is pretty modest, but it certainly shows the kind of growth you want to see more than 2x year over year. Also, they've seen a decline in their gross loss ratio. Now you can think about insurance revenue being kind of like gross written premium minus gross loss equals kind of like gross profit, if you will. I'm sure there's nuances to that that I'm, that I'm skipping by because I don't want to do 18 boring paragraphs, but their gross loss ratio per dollar of gross written premium has gone from 161% in 2017, which means they were paying out $1.60 for every dollar they were bringing in to 113% in 2018, all the way down to 79 cents in 2019. So that's what you want to see. You want to see more premiums and a better loss ratio. And they, they have fulfilled both of those things. And that is where the good news stops. Well, for, um, for, so for the for the eight listeners that are still with us after that uh, conversation, um, 
<laughs> uh, you know, four of them are us, and one is my mother. So, um, well, to our three friends, <laughs> three friends, Ryan Lawler still uh, ch- checking in with us, and and Sar, of course. Um, but I think the uh, I, look, I think the, the numbers were okay, right? What what actually was interesting to me is how early this company is, like in yes. terms of gro- gross uh, re- ah, gross written gross gross written, written premium premium. Um, it's actually really early, right? Like it, it, the Lemonade's not that old of a company. I mean, if you think about it, I think it started in 2013 or 2014. I think 2015. Um, it, uh, 2015. Um, it's like a five-year-old company. When when have we heard of a five-year-old IPO'd company in the last decade? I, I actually cannot think. I mean, other than biotech, where that's quite frequent, uh, and that's yeah. kind of the model in that world. Uh, in the in the software or SaaS world, like slack and all these are 10 year old companies some are 14 15 year old companies this is five years old so we're actually looking at a very very early company which means there's much more opportunity both for the upside and downside to still take place yes but i want to point out that the reason why we're tailing this after vroom is that we're looking at a company that still has what we call nascent financials uh is in that we're seeing the promise of the business but in the short term things look pretty rough i want to add an addendum to this conversation we have been rude for years about companies not going public fast enough. Oh my gosh, they wait 12, 13 years. And we're like, get on with it. And now they're five years. We're like, too soon. We're not. <laughs> we're not We're not being hypocritical. We're trying to point out that it's cool they're going public sooner. We're happy to write about it. It's super neat. But when we're uh, befuddled by certain metrics, it's interesting. So um, I want to let Toss jump in, and then I'm going to bore us with some numbers for about 15 seconds. I was just going to more broadly say that, you know, in the these two S1s, both Lemonade and Vroom, they're basically, you know, saying a lot for all the startups that have risen in my past year and a half covering tech that have used that we're going to, you know, revolutionize this traditional industry overnight. I think because there's not like this amazing story with either of these companies right now, like at looking at only the numbers, the idea of like it, you know, eventually it's going to be okay. I, I was hoping for something more. And I was, I'm sure the startups that were, I guess, in that category were also hoping for something more. So, I, you know, a part of me was like, okay, we're finally going to see it. And we're not yet. But I yeah. I think that leaves me a little bit more neutral on, on covering old, new, new old. But Tosh, you're totally, that's the crazy thing. These companies uh, went out to revolutionize old, old industries, raised a bunch of money to do it, and are now going public. They are not nearly self-sufficient or let alone successful yet in terms of proving long-term business models that work, but investors are buying them up. And right. I bet you we're going to see more companies filing because why not go out when the getting is good? Go get the gut. Why not? Just now. Like people were joking about how the unicorns were going to go public in 2022. No, apparently... gross margins, you are now worth a bajillion dollars, according to Vroom's IPO, which is now up 104%. (laughs) But briefly on the numbers, and then we can wrap. Insurance, as Danny has said repeatedly in the last day, is complicated. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break protocol, and we're going to go ahead and lean on some self-reported, non-GAAP, adjusted metrics to make a point, which is as follows. In Q1 of 2020, Lemonade said that they had operating revenue of $30.5 million. Now, there's a long definition of what that means, but let's just go ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, cool, $30.5 million, from which they generated adjusted gross profit, again, ew, but rolling with it, of $5.4 million. So 18% gross margins. Now, there is a recurring-ish element to insurance if you keep a person for more than one year. Certainly, that does allow you to kind of almost count that as, as some kind of ARR. It's a little dicey. We've written about this. But the company, as it has scaled, has not really demonstrated an ability to drive much more adjusted gross margin. In 2018, it was 17%. In 2019, it was 17%. And this quarter, it is 18%. So as the business has grown from 9 million in 
gross written premiums to 100 and I think it was 17 million, it is effectively flat on adjusted gross margin. So this is a lot of work. A lot of money has gone into this business. A lot of money is going to go into it when it goes public to generate relatively low quality revenue. And I'm, I'm just almost surprised to see so much money from venture capitalists going into businesses with five and 15% gross margins. It is a, it is a, it is a turnabout from the idea that software is great because it's 78% gross margins and it all recurs. That makes sense to me. This makes less sense to me. And that's my, my main tension with these IPOs and why I'm more pessimistic than apparently Wall Street bets is when it comes to their debuts. I want to also, Alex, there was one line you had in the Lemonade story that I wanted to read word for word. I didn't um, ask her to do this, by the way. <laughs> no, you did not. But I thought that it was like this really 2019 line. So I'll say it anyways. So Lemonade generated enough adjusted gross profit in Q1 2020 to cover 28% of its sales and marketing spend in the same period. And that was just um, a head scratcher to me. And, you know, I don't have anything to say beyond that, but it did feel very 2019-y and especially in response to how the public market is reacting right now. Yeah. All feels so the math, on, the math on that, by the way, is their adjusted gross profit was 5.4 million and they spent 19.2 million on sales and marketing in Q1 2020. And that is so far underwater that it makes me really doubt um, what the hell they're doing. I mean, but again, Danny, I'm sure can make a point that the insurance market is large. I, and- I, I, the, the positive view here is, first of all, it's an early, very early company and insurance relationships tend to last a very, 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 very long time. You know, sure. some people have relationships their whole years, right? So we don't know the LTV for a lot of these customers. And the second is, is you have to look at the cost of acquiring a customer for Lemonade compared to its competitors. And I think part of the argument is that, you know, compared to a lot of the incumbents, Lemonade has a cheaper cost of acquiring a customer, which ultimately in the long run means it'll have a much more sane business. Um, 20 million to get to this level of revenue isn't actually all that bad. Uh, particularly if those customers stick around. And that's sort of the argument that Lemonade is trying to present is because they're so easy to use, because they process claims super fast, you know, they are going to have a higher LTV. They're going to have higher trust, more word of mouth. And word of mouth is like the creme de la creme of insurance. I mean, it's always the creme de la creme, but like an insure tech, which has some of the highest CAC cost, if you can solve that with word of mouth, it's amazing, right? You're getting customers for free, which normally would cost $500,000. Yeah. Uh, and that's the entire model there. So I... I, I Am I bullish? I do think it'll go up, uh, you know, but the question is, is like, <laughs> you know, uh, obviously the incomes can change. They're going to look at these numbers. They're going to adapt. And so the question is always like, you know, how does everyone in the, in the ecosystem and both of these are very incumbent driven ecosystems. How do they, how do they adapt over time? Danny, I want to be, I know we're like light on time, but I wanted you to talk about the dilution piece you wrote a little bit, but can you give us like the quick on that? Okay. Well, he, we'll close on the lemonade of lemons. Um, so, so the founders of lemonade did t- turn their lemons into lemonade oh um, in the sense of, I'm going to keep using these Stop terrible Stop juicing pot. that one analogy. You're really putting a yeah. squeeze on it. <laughs> I'm going to put I some can. sugar on top, you know, uh, but uh, actually if you're a founder listening to the show, you're probably very familiar with the fact that like dilution sucks. Like dilution is basically, Hey, I start with owning hundred percent of my company and somehow, you know, 10 years go by and it's like aging. It's like you don't have any cells left anymore. It's like uh, you look at your company, you're like, I own 3% of this thing. Like, what happened? And uh, that's not the case with Lemonade. So uh, one thing that really came, struck me as I was reading the S1 yesterday was that it really gave up almost no equity, from what I can tell, in the S1, from round to round to round. They raised a seed A, B, C, and D. The, the largest dilution, according to the cap table, was the Series C at 10.4%. And the seed round... 9.5%. Right now at IPO, the common shares own 62.2%. And that may include some, 
secondary transactions. It may include some crowdfunding. Um, our crowd, a crowdfunding platform, did sponsor some of the company, which bought common shares. So it's not all founder or employee owned. But nonetheless, like the fact that like each of these rounds in terms of preferred only owns a couple of points at IPO is exceptional to me. Like, and, and, and part of the reason is, is that the valuation curve for this, this company is just gorgeous. I mean, the, the valuation just kept jumping every single round so beautifully. The question is, is will it work on, on, on IPO and Wall Street? We'll see. Yeah. Well, if you, if you conflate gross written premium with ARR and you forget the gross margin calculation, I understand why you'd value it like a SaaS business. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we have to stop there. We're running way over. This has been an equity shot. Tosh, Danny, thank you so much as always for being here. Um, we're back Friday morning with our usual show. So we'll talk to you very, very soon. In the meantime, stay safe and hugs. Bye. I'm now, I'm I'm now recording. recording because... I'm recording. When life gives you lemons, I, you make lemonade. Vroom, vroom. Yeah. So done. I know this is a democracy, but I forbid that. And <laughs> that sounds like our headline. It does. It does. <laughs> I, I mean, okay. All right.